This episode was recorded on the traditional lands of the Gadigal, Wangal, Darug and Wiradjuri people. We acknowledge that sovereignty of these lands was never ceded and pay our respects to elders past and present. Hello and welcome to Trope Watchers, your show about pop culture and why it matters. I'm Scott. And I'm Mia, and we're culture scholars who think that if you can't see how video games have broader cultural implications, you just need to get good. We are joined today by special guest Nissa Harkness. Nissa is a PhD student with Macquarie University. Nissa, tell us what you do. My thesis topic is on disability and gaming. This is more of the cultural aspects of disability, how it's viewed in society, things like that. In particular, I'm looking at how non-normative bodies in games let us think through wider concepts of disability and how these non-normative bodies can also bring about different forms of gameplay and perhaps even enhance video game practices. So in today's episode, we're going to be looking at the current culture in particular parts of gaming culture that has the attitude of a higher difficulty in a game makes it a better game. So you see a lot of gamer comments on Steam or game reviews for games like Cuphead or Super Meat Boy saying things like, yes, games should be difficult. This is a real game. Uh, There's also a bunch of YouTube videos and think pieces out there about how we need to stop making such easy games and make games harder. So let's start with what that means. When I look at difficult games or games that are generally seen as difficult, I tend to like to look at the individual aspects of the game. So, for example, um, if I was to say I like a difficult game like Cuphead uh, and I want more games like Cuphead, then maybe I want games that require skill, really precise timing, learning boss movesets, and take a lot of practice to get perfect. If I say I want more difficult games like Dark Souls, then I might say I want really lore-heavy RPGs that require stamina management and a lot of patience in combat. Or if I say I like games like Darkest Dungeon and want more difficult games like Darkest Dungeon, then maybe I actually want games that integrate the challenging aspects with the gameplay mechanics in really seamless ways. But what you often see is a lot of people making a kind of blanket statement that is, I just want games to be more difficult. And when I hear that, I'm just like, I want more AAA titles that are difficult enough so that I can beat them, but anyone who is a little bit less skilled at the game than me can't, so majority of players. So today we're going to be talking specifically about the idea of accessibility in gaming and what accessibility means. Uh, When gamers describe games as too accessible, they often mean that the game eases the player into the game. uh, So that might be by having a really easy early level or a few easy early levels that kind of ease you in, or it has a tutorial that's like a safe space for you to learn the mechanics. Or maybe they don't punish mistakes too harshly or they let you save really frequently so you can always go back if you mess up. Um, Or maybe they just let you choose a difficulty level. So a lot of games will have like an easy mode, a normal mode, a difficult mode, like a boss mode or titan mode. Um, But when we're talking about accessibility today, it is a much more complex um, idea than that. So Nista, do you want to talk a little bit about what accessibility in gaming means to you? So when I think of accessibility, I think of this tweet that came from Jennifer Sherl, sorry if I get your name wrong, a game lead designer. She suggested that thinking in terms of difficulty and skills is inadequate because people have different abilities and different games test certain abilities 
more than others, like hand-eye coordination or memory or reaction times. I feel much more confident playing strategy games, for example, than platformers, so civilization is way easier for me than Ben and Ed. So rather, she argues that challenge is created by game developers within the context of the game. Yeah, so that's interesting. Um, I was kind of wondering what your guys' relationship with difficulty in games are. Like, how do you feel about difficulty in certain games? How do you approach it? Do you like it in some instances, but less so in others? Alright, so most games I play actually have optional difficulty levels. So half of the fun is seeing what difficulty I start at and where I go. So, for example, I got Democracy 3 on sale recently and I'm trying to figure out what difficulty is right for me. So 50% was insanely easy and I feel not very democratic when I'm getting 98% of the vote every election. (laughs) So that's not really fun. So I like just incremental sort of pushing it up pushing what I can see but also I sort of make my own challenges yeah I think with myself a lot of the games I like are generally known as very difficult games but I don't it's not the difficulty that I like in it so if I play other games I almost always play on normal mode um like whatever kind of the one up from easy mode is is my standard because I just want to kind of get in there and play Um, The only exception I would make for that is if I'm replaying a game, like I just started replaying God of War recently because I liked playing it and I was like, what the hell, I'll go up to Titan mode because there's a trophy I can earn if I beat the game on Titan mode. Um, Or if the game is just too easy, like you were saying, like if there's a game where clearly they just haven't really done it right, because usually I am at that normal level for me to have fun and kind of relax with the game. Uh, But then there are other games that I really like, like we'll speak a lot about um, Dark Souls and Bloodborne today. I love Bloodborne. Uh, I just started playing Neo, which doesn't have um, different levels. Um, Cuphead, which we'll speak about today. It doesn't have levels that you play, but when you fight the bosses, and it is mostly bosses in the game, there are a couple of kind of run and gun levels, but it's mostly bosses. There is the standard and then there's like a easier version of the boss, but to actually progress in the game, you need to have done it on the standard level. So you've got like the normal, you know, reasonably difficult level. Um, I'm not very far in and it's already a little bit challenging for me. So certainly later on, I'm going to struggle, but you can always kind of practice on the easier version before you get up to the the real one, but you, you need to do the real one to progress. So I'm, it's not the difficulty that I like. And to be honest, if some of that difficulty was scaled back in some of these games, potentially I would even like it more because I wouldn't be quite as stressed when I was playing them. But uh, a lot of the games that have, certain kinds of combat systems and stuff that I really enjoy are often the types of games that also are quite difficult and it does make sense um, for those two things to be linked depending on the mechanics you're looking at so I don't know where that makes me stand I would say don't love difficulty but difficulty is often something that's kind of packaged with the things I do like you're a Crash Bandicoot fan aren't you I love Crash Bandicoot (laughs) So those recent remakes um, or remasters, I can't remember what they were, they're quite notoriously difficult and people realising that this year was quite amusing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they were slightly more difficult than they were when you first did it, but it wasn't a big leap. Basically, they just kind of um, smoothed the edges of the 
hitboxes, I guess. So like if you jump for something previously, if you jumped in a particular way, you would have made it, whereas now you don't. But there's it's such a tiny margin that that actually affects it, at least in my experience, that I'm like, no, no, they've had a tricky before. <laughs> like There are always, when you get to the higher levels of Crash Bandicoot, there are levels that are kind of difficult. It's just that now some of the jumps uh, you got to be a bit more precise with than you did before. I think it's just because if you think about how like a character would have been designed like 15 years ago, they would have been much more boxy. And now those corners mm, have mm. been rounded off and those corners are what would have made you like actually make that you jump can't in hang the past. over the edge. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> like there's no clipping and stuff. Yeah. I've, like iron that out. And I really need to get my hands on that game. <laughs> um, for me though, I've kind of swung back and forth from difficulty as a, as a thing that I enjoy in video games. Like back when I was doing my undergrad studies at Macquarie, yay, connections. Um, I wrote a lot of essays about video games and I used those essays as motivation to beat those video games on the hardest difficulty because I'm insane. <laughs> so this is when, I can't remember if it's Call of Duty Modern Warfare 1 or 2. I think it was 2. Yeah, it was 2. Um, I was writing about, you know, representations of race and terrorism and stuff. So naturally I decide I'm going to write about Modern Warfare 2 I'm going to do it on veteran difficulty to motivate myself to get all the last achievements that I need in that game. And that was fucking hard. That was <laughs> hard as hell. That sounds as my like greatest achievement in terms of difficulty in beating a game. But what I did was I was stuck at this point and I had to go to uni for class. So I left my console on for like 48 hours because I could not stand to redo the previous part of the level because there's no save points at this point i had gotten a checkpoint but those checkpoints don't carry over if you turn the game off like you have to start at the start of the level again so my xbox 360 was on for hours and i did beat it finally but that was that was my peak and i don't think i really care to do that anymore in video games particularly like, i don't think i would i don't really bother with hard mode in most games now I, and in some instances, if games are very reliant on story and that's why I'm playing it, like I just want a great in-depth engaging story, I actually sometimes play on easy just to, you know, get more of that rather than get stuck, you know? So it's kind of the same reason why I don't really play any of the Soulsborne games because they are notoriously challenging and sometimes the only time I have for games is very limited, us doing what we do. So I would rather play something that's not going to aggravate me to no end and frustrate me to shit. So I'm a bit of a wimp in that respect now. My adolescent self would probably despise my, me, but you know, we all age and mellow, right? The other thing I really like is uh, Paradox Interactive Games. They're, they're kind of my advice. Like, uh, one of my favorite games of all time is Crusader Kings 2, which if I had to describe it, basically gamifies... Game of Thrones, the, the political intrigue and the factions and all that, that it's basically a game of that with all the complexity and amusing mechanics as you can probably imagine. And there is a fantastic Game of Thrones mod for it as well, which, you know, literally turns that into being true. Um, the thing about those games and a lot of Paradox games like Hearts of Iron, Victoria, Europa Universalis and Stellaris is that they have a ridiculous amount of systems and mechanics to track in the game and they're usually tied up with a lot of historically accurate uh, jargon and not so much in the case of Stellaris which is about um, Star Trek type 
frontier exploration in space. <laughs> Not still. so historically accurate. <laughs> <laughs> but like Crusader Kings 2 is ridiculously historically accurate with a lot of the laws that you need to change and a lot of the um, secession laws and the ways in which those are termed. So you need to have some sort of grounding in that kind of history to understand what the fuck is going on. <laughs> uh, but that just makes it satisfying when 20 hours in and, and they have terrible tutorials too. They're just like text boxes that you read that make no sense. There's no sort of visual application of these mechanics to teach you how they work. You need to basically figure out, figure it out for yourself. So I love those games. They're quite difficult. A lot of people give up, but I kind of get a satisfaction from that. Um, and there's also Iron Man mode, which kind of gets rid of save scumming, which I mean, if we're talking about terms like casual, which gets sort of denigrated within gaming culture and gaming social circles these days. But the other thing is like save scumming, uh, where you can like reload a save to fix something that's gone horribly, horribly wrong <laughs> in these kind of games. But Iron Man mode gets rid of that. So it automatically saves as you go and it replaces the save. So you can't reload in any sense and the only way to get achievements in those kind of games is to play in iron man mode so it can be quite brutal sometimes but again it can also be satisfying so i can understand the appeal of difficulty in some instances but i i mean and and another game i do play is xcom 2 which is quite difficult and has real consequences if you fuck up in the game you can lose characters forever no, it's got permadeath, just like in Darkest Dungeon. But I do save scum in that because I like to test the different uh, approaches to particular combat scenarios to see how it plays out. So I kind of swing on both fences there. It's also because it doesn't block me off from my Chivos with Iron Man mode in that game. Yay, XCOM 2. But the thing I wanted to ask you guys is, is it an issue or a problem that people want Difficult games that not many people beat. Like, is there inherently an issue with that, or is it something else? Uh, I don't think it's exactly a problem that there's games available that some people can play, some people can can't, some people can't because that's life. But <laughs> so there's some story modes that I'm really curious about in games like Dark Souls, which I know I definitely cannot play. <laughs> but I'm also curious about ideas of possible cheating and fear of missing out mm. so in world of warcraft for example they created a um, group finder called looking for raid and it's supposed to be just this casual look around at the raid and the story that it offers and narrowing down the sorts of mechanics and difficulty that you see in the other levels it's supposed to just be literally the story mode version and some people take it quite a bit too seriously but also I was just thinking about on the weekend I was talking to a friend and he was trying to convince me to play GTA 5 and he said something interesting that you can actually skip the gameplay event when you lose too many times at it and that just got my attention, because normally it's you skip the narrative to get to the gameplay mode. There are other games that do similar kind of things. Like if I bring up God of War again, uh, if you lose a few times, it then comes up being like, do you want to switch to easy mode? <laughs> Which can be like a real like stab in the gut. <laughs> You're like, ah, oh. except the problem is 
what it's designed to do is like, let's say you're going up against a boss or you're going up against a, a level where there's a lot of different enemies and you keep dying there and then it goes to easy mode. Yeah, like that's that's a great thing. If someone has put the game at too high of a level, because you can't change it through the settings. So if someone has put it too high for their skill level, perfect. Like you've got the option to go down. And once you go down, that's where you stay. Like you're on easy mode for the rest of the game. My problem is I fall off things all the time when I'm playing games. <laughs> like honestly, I if you were to like see in any game like Dark Souls 2 is a great example <laughs> most of my deaths are not from the enemies it's from me falling off freaking like bridges and stuff when I'm trying <laughs> to get to places because so I'm just I'm not good at that um so constantly it would come up then and if I change the mode to easy that doesn't help that at all <laughs> <laughs> so I was like you don't understand why I'm dying like I know you're you trying to help me game Nimbus cloud mechanic I know like if easy put up like rails on everything that so I could fall <laughs> off just then get that'd be rid great. of the gutter balls right <laughs> So it's that kind of thing where it's like it, it's it's thought about some players, but it hasn't thought about my my needs as a player. And fine, like I don't need to be catered to there, but it, it's an interesting idea. Um, and like even you know, for example, Uncharted, if you if you're at one of those kind of puzzle places or just any level where you're not proceeding, if you don't proceed fast enough outside of a particular room, it will then say hint on the screen, and if you click on the button, it will show you where you approximately you should be kind of focusing your attention to figure out how to progress doesn't that game also have a mechanic where if you're stuck on a puzzle um the character's dialogue will like point the way towards solving it like not giving you the answer but just like hmm that looks interesting insert yes um, architectural thing it will do something like that so we'll kind of try and nudge you i'm thinking about uncharted specifically at the moment because um my housemate who is not a gamer at all. She's in her 30s. She doesn't play video games. She's been watching me play some games and she liked working with me on the puzzle. So I was like, I think you should play Uncharted. Like, I think you'll like the story and you'll like the puzzle part. Um, so she's playing that on easy at the moment and she's going well, um, especially because there is actually a mode for Uncharted where you basically just like, it's just to kind of walk around and get the story and not to actually really engage in the gameplay. I uh, from the description, I haven't actually done this one, but it seems like you don't really fight people, maybe. I should have probably oh, looked man, that up. I should have used that mode. Cause <laughs> yeah, like it's like a scenic route. Like, so oh. <laughs> you kind of get to go through it. Uh, but she'll often get like those little hints on the screen and she'll look around. Or I've also kind of told her, like, listen to the music. When the music stops, like that intense music stops, you know that there's no more enemies. You don't need to worry. You can go out and start to pick up ammo and stuff because the music will actually cue you into once you've beat everyone in a particular area. It will go like, dun, 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 and then like stop playing the music. And you're like, Oh, okay, I'm safe. <laughs> so that's perfect for her. Like little things where she's probably not as tuned in to the things that we're just used to from gaming. Uh, little things that are just part of like gaming experiences. And if you played any video game, like you're kind of used to, for example, often X will either mean like engage in some kind of combat or jump if you're playing a PlayStation. Like people just kind of know that. Whereas she had no idea. She'd never used a PlayStation before. So. Even mm, simple mm. things like what button do I use for what? She had to learn from scratch. So the idea that you bring up about familiarity of controllers is also interesting because recently I started playing Hellblade and it, mm. there is no explicit tutorial for it. It doesn't say 
this button for combat, this button for interact, this button for whatever. And they're actually all normal controls that I've recognized because I had to go into the menu to see what the controls were. Mm. But those controls are in games like Skyrim, like press F to interact. And right. I've never had to do that in World of Warcraft, which I played pretty much since the beginning. So, yeah, just the idea of familiarity and you're sort of expected to know these things or expected <laughs> to pick it up or to try and I'm just like, no, I'm just going to click the menu and see what the interact button is. Um, yeah, so the reason why I brought that up is because... Uh, difficulty breeds competitiveness between gamers, right? So the idea that you can beat a game or beat a game at a specific level of difficulty, whereas others can't, gives some some degree of satisfaction. I mean, I think we all can understand that. Um, and I don't think there's anything really inherently wrong with that insofar as that's what you go to games for. But when it becomes applied to gaming culture as a whole and you walk around with a chip on your shoulder expecting all games to meet that expectation and people who indulge in games that don't have that interest or don't um, sort of uh, contribute to that gaming overall experience, uh, that's when you become an asshole, essentially. Um, about, I mean, competitive, competitiveness has been part of gaming culture since the beginning, right? So, like, leaderboards um, and uh, in arcades and so forth, but also... Uh, high scores and stuff, just personal high scores in video games. That That's a pretty entrenched convention for video gaming since the beginning, since the early 70s. Um, as well as multiplayer, which we aren't really going to be talking about today. Uh, a lot of the games we're discussing either are solo experiences or have some degree of co-op in the sense of Soulsborne. Uh, but we're not really talking about competitive multiplayer, so like death matches um, and that sort of stuff. But... There is, there is a satisfaction that I find in playing multiplayer, particularly ranked multiplayer. So ranked is ranked separates the gaming population of of uh, multiplayer centric video games into two camps. One termed casual, which may be problematic, is for people who don't really take it serious, want to just have a quick play, um, a chill session, and maybe not necessarily come across people who are just so good at the game that you get destroyed and don't have fun. That's what casuals for, but ranks for the other types of people, or in my case, particularly with Rocket League, where we were playing either teams that are just so bad that it wasn't fun destroying them, or teams that were so good it wasn't fun being destroyed by them, ranked actually gives us a sort of matchmaking mechanic that teams us up against other players equal to our skill and we get better by playing those people sometimes we lose sometimes we don't but it just leads to a more overall enjoyable multiplayer experience and there is a level of satisfaction to come with uh ranking up um so you usually get these symbols uh indicating rank and skill level that become bragging rights right so i'm currently platinum in rocket league with my team i'm also platinum on overwatch and on consoles as a caveat not pc i would be bronze on pc um and the these become a source of pride in a sense and there's nothing inherently wrong with that that's why ranked multiplayer exists if you go to games particularly multiplayer games um with an interest in bettering your skills uh coordinating teamwork and being winning essentially there's nothing wrong with winning is kind of the thing that i'm underscoring here um 
But again, even in my experience in ranked, this can lead to a sort of toxic fan culture as well, where people are take that sort of bragging right logic with ranked play and turn it into something that's shaming or or just just particularly unpleasant to be around and that happens a lot in rocket league and stuff though i will say that blizzard games tend to iron that out um so there's a lot of a lot of um phrases and jargon that tend to be um bantery or toxic in in the sense that they're meant to shame the opponents so like easy for example um is one but with blizzard games they their chat system recognizes it and turns it into good luck better luck next time or something like that so it kind of irons out that kind of that kind of gaming culture culture as well so there's a lot of emphasis on older games being harder and using that as bragging rights particularly in the world of warcraft community so for example they recently announced that they were going to bring back the classic game known as Vanilla WoW, and it's created this huge argument in the community over what elements should be included or excluded, whether it's quality life improvements or graphics updates. But at the heart of it, the stereotypical debate relies on recreating the so-called difficulty of Vanilla WoW, and I try not to do the whole back-in-my-day stance, <laughs> but I did play in Vanilla and what I miss most is the questing. And for some reason, that's one of the elements that has completely been lost in the modern game. So right now I have like 13 or 14 max level characters because I have no life. But <laughs> you can't say that it wasn't harder back then because leveling was a huge part of the game. It was a huge time investment that's now totally bypassed by level boosts or made into a joke because of how experience is gained so easily. Now with things such as heirlooms, or you can get mounts at lower levels, money is a lot easier now. And back then you had to be so much more careful with mana conservation, you could die easily, and they, they keep trying to tinker with it to make it hard again, but I'm not sure if they're really successful. So... Things like even the mechanics of the game. So right now there's a lot of in-game assistance. You get directional arrows on the mini-map as to where you have to go. You get quest tracking that boils down the, you know, wall of text into collect ten boar tusks. And in case it's hard to find where it is, you've got so many sites. Like the Wowhead site is phenomenal. And to risk saying, back in my day, well, back in my day, you actually had to read the text, you had to try to find <laughs> the area, or you just tried to go to websites, but they weren't as complete as they are now. And I haven't even mentioned raiding yet, but you get the idea. Early on, they just had more punishments for leveling, and now it's sort of just made inconvenient and something you just have to get out of the way when back then it was part of the game mm. and did you do you prefer that as the approach to world of warcraft or do you see a value in changing that kind of gameplay experience 
Well, I think for me, I'm not particularly a social player. I don't really mm-hmm. do any dungeons or raiding anymore. I, I've been there, done that. Uh, not interested. But I still really enjoy questing, and I do agree. Especially also because a lot of the quests have changed, so there used to be a really great storyline in Duskwood, and I would love going through and just exploring that lore. And now it's like you kill ten things and you out-level the zone, which is another thing that they're changing soon. But, yeah, I think the whole idea that it was harder then is sort of a legit one, but also I think people don't care for leveling anymore. You just get to max level and you kill the big bad, and that's where the difficulty is now. Rather than investing so much time into the process, yeah, I get that. So that is an interesting idea of like the that nostalgic rose-coloured glasses aspect of old games. Um, I see that a lot in gaming forums that, you know, games used to be harder back in the day. Um, now, this isn't really the case with things like Vanilla WoW, more they're talking about like arcade games, like really old games. Um, but a lot of the things that made those games hard, not all of it, but you know, a decent part of what made those games hard is stuff like the fact that you couldn't save your progress and you had limited lives. And that was a practical measure because at that time you went to an arcade to game. These are public spaces. You didn't have a computer at home that you could game on um, or very few people did. So you went to this public space where you would sit and play something in a single sitting. So, and you also had much smaller memory in these machines than you do today, like ridiculously smaller. So you really were limited in how much could actually be saved and stored in the long term. Basically, it was going to be a number, like a high score. So there were practical reasons for why these games are so difficult. So you see the same kind of games generally mention things like Battletoads and Mega Man and Contra and Super Mario Brothers, The Lost Levels and Berserk, which uh, I wanted to bring up specifically because this one, I shouldn't laugh, it famously had a, a teenager die of a heart attack just after he achieved a high score in that game. That was like a big thing at the time. Um, he played this quite difficult game and then a few moments later died of a heart attack. Blaze of Glory. I'm sorry, I want to go like that. Yeah, so when a gaming legend is like, I mean, I don't know if it was actually related, like the stress on his heart, I'm sure there were other factors there, but obviously that's how it was kind of remembered as this thing. Yeah, I mean, it's true that old games are typically harder, but also, I mean, as a, like I never really finished games as a kid, but that's because I was shitter as a gamer as a kid as well, so there's kind of like a trade there. But... Uh, the other thing I wanted to sort of highlight here is that whole games were hard because they were fucking shit. This is at a time where uh, games development was less refined. It had less less of a legacy of refinement in terms of mechanics and stuff. And as you mentioned, the technological limits as well. And that plays a part in how difficult these games were. So the kind of rose-colored nostalgia for a lot of these games kind of ignores that. Um, that said... Uh, there was also something called the rental strategy. So if if you're interested in the sort of ways in which game development has has evolved over time, I do recommend checking out the Double Fine Studios YouTube series where uh, various members of that team who made like Psychonauts and stuff, um, they sit down, play one of their 
favorite games from childhood that had such an impact on them wanting to take a career in in games development and sometimes that includes sitting alongside one of the developers for those games and so one of those videos um was about the aladdin game and the lion king game from the sort of uh 8-bit 16-bit era i can't particularly remember which one but these games were notoriously difficult like they they were notorious for their difficulty spikes all of a sudden so you do the first two levels they're relatively breezy and then like the third or fourth level would be insanely difficult. And it turns out there was a reason for this and that's called the rental strategy. So game developers realized that there was a rental market for their games and they wanted people to rebuy those games on rent. Um, and so you'd beat the first few levels. So you'd feel good and then you'd get stuck. And the logic was that your pride would encourage you to re-rent that game because you can't get past that level to finally pass it essentially so some games are made very difficult only for very short segments of the game for that very reason which is very interesting that kind of actually fascinates me and i have played that aladdin game and i have played that lion king game in fact that lion king game is the very first game i ever saw my dad play on the Sega master system so <laughs> it was kind of interesting to have my experience with that game validated I'm not that shit. <laughs> it was because it was made impossible to progress at certain points, which meant you, which is good. And there you go, Dad. That's also why you suck too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do find it funny. A lot of the people who kind of complain about games becoming more and more accessible to people, thinking back to that rental strategy in the past and why they were more difficult then. Like, if you're upset that games are more accessible now, blame capitalism. <laughs> it's all about wanting to sell more games. <laughs> It's not like a, a, you know, secret socialist agenda. It's capitalism. <laughs> um, but, I mean, it, if I just circle back to um, the tweet, Nissa, that you mentioned about Jennifer Sherl, um, one of the big things that stood out to me through that um, Twitter thread was the idea that, like, if you can play a game, there's a reason that you can play the game. The game designer and the game developers have made it accessible for you. Like, that is the job of people who make games, to make them accessible. That's the only way you can play the game. So, to an extent, all games use these same kind of common mechanics, like we're talking about with either you play keyboard and mouse, or you play with a controller, or sometimes there are kind of other gimmicky type ways that you play. Uh, and then there are sometimes also accessories that are specifically designed to people who need those accessories to interact with the game. Um, but generally, for the majority of games, it's the same set of common mechanics. And even when you get to games that try and subvert this, so we've got I Want to Be the Guy, we've got Dwarf Fortress, uh, the game Her Story. These are all games that kind of play with how you expect a game to play if you don't know what it is going into it. Uh, and they force players to figure out unfamiliar mechanics. But they still have the same basic universal principles that have to stay the same. Uh, I do have a few notes on I Want to Be the Guy later, so I'll save that. But Her Story is a great game. Basically, Her Story is you sit down and you've got a police database and you need to solve this case. Um, and all you can do is search in this police database. So you kind of got to figure out, because it doesn't tell you what kind of things you should be searching for. It's literally like any other database in the world. It's like using Google. 
You just need to search for it until, and sometimes you'll put in a keyword and it'll come up with something. We'll show you a new video. Sometimes there just won't be anything available. But as you go, you can start to figure out what kind of things you can look for. Um, but it still makes a few assumptions. So it assumes that you understand conceptually how a database works. You understand that you can type a few words, press enter or whatever, and it will return something to you. So that's the first assumption this game has to make. It also assumes that you have the cultural literacy to understand the types of terms you might want to search. So it assumes that you might have seen maybe a police or a crime show at some point in the past. Um, so you'll have a bit of an idea of how you can search. It doesn't think everyone's going to be a police officer or a lawyer. It assumes that everyone kind of has some familiarity with um, these professions from a cultural perspective, from consuming media that portrays them, and thus they'll have a bit of an idea of how they might want to start searching, what kinds of words might come up in this game. And that's how you play the game. If you don't have this, if you've never seen any police drama show or crime show or law show, or if you've never owned a computer, like, you know, for example, if you've never used the internet and you've never used a database... You'll have no idea what to do with this game. You'd just be like, what is it? Why isn't it doing it? You could be like a pro at other games, but if you don't understand how a database works, it won't work for you. And it's a pretty simple game for most players. That was a very interesting game. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of Googling as gameplay, yeah. I think is the phrase they use. Yeah. So let's take that idea and make it a little bit more basic just to really kind of understand this idea of accessibility. If the game uses a graphical user interface, so that is when you look at a screen and you can see some kind of images, it's not just a wall of text. And almost all games do these days. There are some games, kind of retro games that you can do, and I'm sure there are games out there that play on those kind of text-based games, but most games use a graphical user interface. It is designed for players who primarily rely on their site for gaming. So if you don't use your site, then that game is not accessible to you. If you are using a game that uses a keyboard and mouse, even if the keys are unintuitive, like I want to be the guy, it still assumes that you understand how a keyboard and mouse works. And as someone who used to work as a software trainer and worked in IT, I can tell you not everyone understands how a keyboard and mouse works. <laughs> Garrett, I've seen some people do weird things with mice. <laughs> uh, uh, I feel like we're on the fringe of a rant. No, no, no. <laughs> Again, I, that isn't a judgment. It's just if you've never used a computer, what would you think a mouse does? You'd look at it, you'd be like, what is this thing? And like, of course. So what she did with it was quite amusing and very cute. <laughs> um, on top of that, very few games these days let your death be permanent. You might have um, other characters in the game die permanently. And there are some exceptions to this. Some games do let you die permanently. Uh, but most games don't because the game developers understand that if you've spent hours of your time and energy in this game and then 100% of your progress was lost and there was no way to get it back, you probably won't want to play it again. They would need to have made it really, really uh, addictive and probably quite a short game for you to have any kind of incentive to pick up the game again and <laughs> like start it all from scratch. So there are these kind of basic things that developers put into these games that no one really thinks of as making the game easy but they're still making it accessible to people yeah just talking about 
the way in which accessibility is part and parcel about game development and has always been about making games accessible in certain ways. Um, my research deals with a lot of emerging technologies, some of which include VR development, so virtual reality. And in my experience researching that, uh, a term crops up a lot called human-centered design. And this is about developing experiences, VR experiences that are tailored to be the most palatable to a human being, essentially. Um, so VR's had a lot of issues with uh, motion sickness, um, disembodiment in terms of, you know, you're seeing one thing, but you're physically experiencing another. And that just gives you such a disconnect that it can make you feel nauseous and so forth. So human-centered design is about nullifying that. Um, but this presumes that the user um, interfacing with VR is um, normatively able-bodied. Right? Th that is an assumption that's built into these uh, design choices, these gameplay, not, not necessarily gameplay, not um, just VR development in general. Um, that is what's presumed when they're developing the basis for software and interface creation, which means that necessarily... Um, you mentioned how video games, uh, if you have uh, issues with your sight, um, video games aren't for you, essentially. And that's kind of the same deal with VR in terms of, in, in many respects, not just blindness, but also um, all the other senses as well and all the other different ways in which they interact to create um, simulated experiences of space and events. Um, yeah, so... Really thinking about that and critically engage, engaging with those kind of assumptions uh, is key for discussing accessibility. The fact that you bring up VR is interesting because I have a huge problem with first per yeah, with first person games and nausea. So there are games like Among the Sleep, which is so fantastic on so many levels. But it's hard for me to even watch a let's play of it, let alone play it, because of that nausea. And VR, I've tried a few times, and I've tried with different devices, and it just keeps happening. Yeah, it's interesting that you mention um, nausea and stuff uh, being experienced in first-person games for you personally. Because I had a very weird experience with a game... I think it was earlier this year, The Witness, which is just a first-person puzzle game. But it gave me motion sickness and it gave me a migraine, which is something that I don't normally experience with video games. I've been video gaming since I was four years old. I, I'm so used to it now that I've never really had any issues um, in that respect. But this particular game in 2017, like 20 years legacy of playing like first-person shooters and stuff, for some reason that game made me feel deeply nauseous and I'm not entirely sure what it was about that game it is a thing that I've noticed mentioned a lot online so it's not just me but when I was playing it it gave me a migraine uh, I think it's something to do with the motion blurring and stuff but it made my partner Nicole bedridden who unfortunately does not have that legacy of gaming so obviously it hit her worse in that respect but also one of my friends who is also a pretty avid video gamer he's a streamer on twitch as well he mentioned that the game also made him motion sick so there's, there's something about the design of the witness that triggered something in both of us that wasn't triggered in any of the sort of fast-paced twitch reliant 
um, reflex shooters like Lawbreakers more recently and that kind of stuff. Like I've played a lot of those kind of games and for some reason those fast-paced shooters never really triggered that at me, but The Witness did. It's a very unfortunate. It's a good game. So as we move on, I might encourage our listeners to keep a few things in mind in terms of accessibility. Um, so there are multiple different ways, multiple different factors that developers can take into account when they're making a game accessible to you. So if it was originally made in a language that is not your first language and it's been translated, or even if it's just through subtitles, it has been made accessible for you. If the game is available on multiple platforms, you don't need a specific console or equipment to play it. If the price is affordable, if you can use third-party hardware or software, if you've got a disability such as a joystick or a switch, if the game doesn't use jargon you're unfamiliar with, such as highly scientific concepts or legal jargon without explaining it or easing you into that kind of jargon, if the game gives you an option of avoiding content that you might be uncomfortable seeing, such as graphic sex scenes or rape, if the game gives you the option of customising your characters or gives you a diverse range of characters that you can identify, if the game lets you choose a weapon or a playstyle that works best for you, such as being able to make use of ranged weapons or sorcery or a shield, if the game lets you adjust the brightness of the display so that if you have a cheaper display or if your eyesight isn't adjusted to particular types of lighting, you can still see the game. These are all ways that games are accessible. Uh, so as we move into this next point, that's just one thing I'd, I'd like people to keep in mind and think about maybe the ways that games that really don't seem very, um, seem to have been made accessible at all, actually are still accessible in many different ways. And there has been a lot of thought into how you specifically will be able to play this game that some other people aren't able to play. So let's jump into the game that I think is kind of most commonly thought about when these days, at least when people say like difficult games, um, is the game Dark Souls. Dark Souls by From Software, very famous for being a difficult franchise. And over the years, a kind of trend has begun of describing just generically difficult games as, quote, like Dark Souls or like Dark Souls, but this, or like a Souls game, but this. So these games essentially are dealing in the social currency of player pride and feeling superior in a particular way. There are plenty of gamers who enjoy bragging about how easy, notoriously difficult games are and how many times they've completed it and how they finished the game without dying that one time or if they've used only a broken weapon throughout the whole game or if they controlled the game only with voice commands. So there's this kind of um, elitist kind of social comparison going on to make people feel good about themselves. And to give you an idea of the culture surrounding these games, a common refrain that you'll see when people ask, how do you get past a particular boss or how do you get past this particular area is to get good. Um, and I will just say that my assumption is if I see someone use that phrase and they're not being ironic, which a lot of people are being ironic when they use it these days, but if you use it unironically, I will assume that video games are literally the only thing that you've ever been good at in your life and you need this. You need to feel good about it to make up for it. <laughs> Dark Souls is a good one to bring up for quite a few personal reasons. I can't quite tell whether I'm just particularly shit at the game, that I can't progress <laughs> in it past, you know, the first boss, which is entirely possible and I accept that if it is true. But also it 
there could be some element of my disability. My hands are particularly weak and get shaky. I can't grip the controller right. right. And I think maybe I'm not as dexterous or nimble on controllers as most people would be able to learn. Um, but uh, on your side note comment, this is somewhat similar in WoW because when you've got someone with a mod that tracks DPS or damage per second, um, showing it off is often referred to as dick meters or showing off your <laughs> e-peen. <laughs> it's just that sort of, you know, it's all about you and it's very narcissistic and show-offy and... Yeah, I entirely agree with your comment there. So with that idea of something being like Dark Souls or the Dark Souls of a particular niche, uh, this has become an ongoing joke uh, in a lot of gaming communities because it essentially just means it's a hard game. Like, great. And you will occasionally find games that try and take a more nuanced approach to Dark Souls inspiration and actually try and emulate game mechanics or level design, which I personally find the two most interesting except for potentially the lore the mechanics for combat and the level design are two of the most interesting parts of that game not necessarily how difficult it is so here are some examples of ways that these games that are a little bit closer i'm not going to go into all the ridiculous ones that are just not even close except they're difficult they become like the whatever like the dark souls of whatever weird niche but you have things like Sultan Sanctuary is 2D Dark Souls. You have Necropolis, which is a more punishing, funnier Dark Souls with better co-op multiplayer. You've got Titan Souls, which is Dark Souls meets Shadow of the Colossus. You've got Neo, which is Dark Souls meets Ninja Garden. You've got The Surge, which is sci-fi or dark sci-fi Dark Souls. Um, and the developer's previous game, which is Lords of the Fallen, is generally dismissed as like an inferior Dark Souls clone. But all of these games inevitably end up being difficult games. You rarely see games with similarly well-designed levels, lore and combat systems being compared to Dark Souls if they have the option of playing in a way that is considered easy or casual. Okay, so I just want to make a quick note on Lords of the Fallen. Now, I haven't played this game and I came to this episode fully intending to have played this game by the time I recorded. I purposely played a bit of Cuphead and played a bit of Neo before I came to this, so I felt like I actually understood the games. I tried to play Lords of the Fallen and the game is broken and would give me a black screen and the audio and that is it. So I, they haven't patched it in a couple of years. I don't think I'm ever going to be able to play it, on computer at least. Maybe if it's ever really cheap on PlayStation, I'll buy it. But still, regardless, the executive producer... Tomas Gop, I apologize if I pronounced that incorrectly, um, had a quote. So he said, personally, I believe the most important factor in whether or not Lords of the Fallen is going to succeed is if it's going to be clear that the goal we have is to make the game challenging, but accessible, approachable. We want it explained in a little better of a way. So the game, so the opening of the game is very important to us. So from what I've gathered without having actually played the game, unfortunately, is that it, they have an extensive tutorial and different levels of achievement from beating bosses. So for example, if you beat a boss under very specific conditions, um, like maybe you don't lose any health, I don't know if that's actually one, but for example, that could be one, um, then you might get better 
loot. So this seems to be a different approach to having easy mode and difficult mode uh, without actually having those modes. Instead, it's the way you interact with the game. If you beat it in a particular way or if you beat a particular part in a different way, you get different rewards for that kind of gameplay. That's interesting. I like that. That's actually kind of similar to something that's in Destiny 2 where you have public events. So people in the game world will all congregate on a point and take on a particularly tough enemy. Um, But if you do a certain set of conditions, uh, it turns into a heroic event, which drops generally better loot, you get more experience, so on and so forth. It's kind of similar to that, I think, which is a very interesting way in doing... Uh, a kind of Souls-like or single-player RPG-type approach to bosses. I'd be interested in checking that out, if I could play it. <laughs> I might have the same issues as you. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's interesting here is the hype around the game, which is sometimes purposely marketed in a particular way. It's purposely marketed as like Dark Souls to get into that community. Or sometimes it's just described by reviewers as that way. But it creates this kind of difficulty hype that ends up actually acting like an elitist barrier to game gamers who might be put off by the idea of a game being difficult. So, like I said before, I describe myself as a casual gamer. I don't sit down and play, you know, several hours every single day. Um, I play it when I've got the time and I don't always want something that's particularly difficult. Sometimes I want something that's just really easy and I can kind of dip in and out. So I, in the past, would never have picked up a Soulsborne game. Um, And if I had learnt about it, if I knew what the game was about. But when I got my PlayStation, I kind of just bought a handful of games online uh, on like a Cyber Monday sale or something uh, based on the reviews that they got. And one of them was Bloodborne. And I'm like, oh, that's got great reviews. I'll just buy that. I had no idea. And I kind of seen like some pictures of it. And I'm like, that looks kind of cool and like gothic-y. Like that might be a fun game. Anyway, so I buy it. It arrives. I put it in. And I just played like the first three Uncharted games that I'd never played before either. Very different games. And if you're playing on normal mode, significantly easier games, even if you're like me and really crap at any kind of shooters are still significantly easier. So I put in Bloodborne and the first thing that happens is you need to fight this uh, wolf or werewolf kind of thing, this beast. And it's at lower health, except at this point you don't have any weapons. And you go and you're like, all right, well, it's it's at part health. Obviously, this is a way to ease me into the game and I'll get one of them later and it's going to be full health. And anyway, so I go up and it immediately kills me. And then you go to this other place where you're supposed to pick up your weapons so you can defeat this thing, which I picked them up, but I didn't know how to equip them. So I tried to beat this thing so many times without equipping them and I wasn't very good. So even though it is possible to beat it without the weapons, I could not do that. Um, Eventually I figured out how to equip it. Then I started to play some of the game and the game is just very, very punishing. And I didn't know that this is on purpose like I didn't know it's supposed to be a very punishing game so I'm going through this game I'm like I'm doing something wrong I don't understand this game it's clearly just not something I'm I I need to learn how to do it and eventually I was so frustrated I rage quit looked it up I was like oh okay like you are supposed to die a lot that's pretty normal everyone's expected to do that and then eventually months later when someone finally convinced me to pick it up again 
I really enjoyed it. And that's like been my gateway into getting these other games. But if someone had just described to me, this is a really punishing game, you'll die over and over again, it's really, really hard, but didn't stop to be like, but that's normal, you are supposed to die, like, that's fine, it'll teach you lessons every time, and you'll get a little bit better every time. If I just heard the first part, which is often what people talk about, I would never pick up those games at all. I'd just, I'd still be like, nope, not for me, not interested, never going to do it. Um, So when you tell, quote, casual gamers that a game's really hard without explaining all these other aspects and that failure is necessary, you're deterring them from picking it up. And I don't understand why anyone who is a gamer would feel good about someone not even trying a game because they feel like it's going to be too difficult. Why would you not want someone at least to give it a shot and to give more money to that developer that you love and that publisher that is publishing the games that you love and incentivize them to keep making those kind of games? So there's been a bit of an issue in game studies about how to classify or put in a typology of what is casual and what is hardcore. So if casual is just decided by how much time is spent in the game, then why can't mobile gamers be considered hardcore? Because mm. some of them can certainly rack up the hours. Yeah. <laughs> is it is it a genre or is it the play style that defines what is casual? It's sort of really nebulous. But then again, returning to World of Warcraft, it's often suggested that the audience itself has changed. So at the start, back in the day when it was hard, Many of the players were teens with lots of time on their hands, but now the audience is made up of 30-somethings with jobs and kids and cats to look after. (laughs) And so the game has perhaps changed to reflect this. Battlegrounds were made shorter with easier, clearer objectives. Raids were made more limited in scope, and a tool was added to allow for a, dare I say it, casual mode of raid with easier mechanics. But half the time I see people complain about these things that make it easier, they seem happy enough to take advantage of how it's been made easier to level characters because supposedly the so-called real game only starts when you're at max level, which I've mentioned before. Yeah. Yeah, I find, like, just that idea of people who have, like, other kind of time commitments not being catered for because that would rob someone of their own kind of thing. Like, that's... That's frustrating. (laughs) So in addition to games that are described as Souls-like that covertly trade in this kind of currency of difficulty, then you've also got games that are specifically designed to be hard. And I don't want to say there's anything wrong with this. There definitely is nothing inherently wrong with the idea of making a game with the goal being that it is a difficult game. And many of these games end up being really interesting and innovative because of that. But what I do argue is that it's not their difficulty that's making them innovative or popular, but because the developers aren't really just trying to make a game that is hard. Because all you would need to do to make a game hard is to make the enemies have smaller hitboxes and larger health and they can kill you in one shot. And then the game is just harder. Like, it's less fun, but it's harder. That's a really easy thing to do. Instead, the developers are actually trying to make a game that subverts expectations. And that's where the difficulty comes in, because you need to rethink how you're approaching gaming to actually be successful at the game. So I mentioned earlier the game I Want to Be the Guy, or its full title, I Want to Be the Guy, colon, the movie, colon, the game. (laughs) This game is designed specifically to be difficult. 
But what it essentially is, if you break it down, it's a puzzle game. The only reason it's difficult is because of how we're accustomed to playing games. So the way it works is it's a keyboard and mouse game. It's a free game and it's also open so people can work on it. Um, like in, for example, uh, build patches and stuff so it can be uh, downloaded onto multiple games. So clearly the developer wants more people to play it. They're not financially benefiting from it. You think you can donate to the site potentially but it's not like a game that you purchase which is good because to be honest if you don't know what you're getting into when you go into it you'd play it for like three minutes and you wouldn't even get past the first screen and you'd be like fuck this I'm out I'm never playing this game again Um, because what you do is usually in a game you would sit down and maybe to progress for this is like a 2d kind of platformer looking game you would either use the arrow keys or you would use like WASD to get across that's a standard way of um, progressing. But in I want to be the guy, it's not those keys. And you got to figure out what keys you got to use. And if you press the wrong key, it might kill you. And then you go back to the beginning. So it's just kind of making us rethink like the game isn't actually an inherently difficult game. If you had never used a keyboard and mouse before, there is no reason why I want to be the guy would be any more difficult than any other keyboard and mouse, um, 2d platformer they would theoretically be exactly the same for you to play. But it's assuming that the people playing it have used a keyboard before and they have used a keyboard to play a game before and therefore they've got these kind of expectations that they need to get across. So games that subvert our expectations is pretty much what I'm doing in my thesis. So you've got Quop as a famous example of this and modern ragdoll physics-based games like Deputy Dangle, Octodad, I Am Bread, I Am Bread, probably have a lot to thank Quop for. These games make moving these bodies the actual challenge of the game. And actually, there's also Manual Samuel. You have to really concentrate on how to move the character to achieve whatever the goal is for the chapter or the moment. And it's not just WASD. You have to fling around tentacles to try to get around. Um, You've also got... A few student games like Rise by Jiro Games, which adapts these type of mechanics to explicitly link the idea of difficulty of moving or the hardness in controlling the body, but links that mechanic with a chronic health condition. Another student game, Robin, is a kind of management simulator designed to be about chronic fatigue syndrome and what has become known as the spoon theory. So just to be quick on the spoon theory the spoon theory was defined by a blogger who was trying to explain to a friend how much extra effort and difficulty there is in being chronically ill or disabled the spoons are used as a metaphor for energy and as she explains to her friend some days it takes more energy or more spoons to do what might be considered small things to enabled person like getting out of bed might take a normal well i should say abled person one spoon there's no effort in getting out of bed but for chronically ill people perhaps with uh, chronic fatigue syndrome or fibromyalgia getting out of bed in itself can take five spoons having a shower can take more spoons making breakfast and you only have a certain limited number of spoons per day and you have to really think and strategize how you're going to work your day around how many spoons you have so we're kind of now coming to that the point where we're talking more specifically about the idea of accessibility relating to 
disability, uh, which is how I'd always used the term accessibility in the past. So it was recently when I was looking at games being described as accessible because they're not really hard. I was like, I've never really thought about accessible in that way before. I've always thought about accessible as being accessible for non-normatively able-bodied people. Like, So that was an interesting one for me. Uh, But I do want to quickly bring up a video that I saw recently, totally by accident. I was not looking for research on this at all, but I found it like perfect, which was titled Cuphead the Fake Outrage. It's a YouTube video by YouTuber Sean, S-H-A-U-N. But just to summarize, the idea was that apparently people were outraged that this game Cuphead was um, being called ableist because it's too difficult. There was also a side thing about being called racist because it was heavily influenced by um, a lot of 30s cartoons, which were very overtly racist, but that's not the topic of today's thing. So apparently there was this whole thing that Cuphead was an ableist game because it was difficult. Now, from what we've gathered, no one actually said this, and to kind of see the history of how people got into their head that people were calling Cuphead ableist, watch the video by Sean, it details it really well. But I do want to address the idea, because it's an interesting idea. Cuphead and other hard games, in my opinion, I would like to hear your thoughts as well, are not ableist, or they don't necessarily have to be ableist. They could actually have, you know, ableist language and stuff in it, but they're not inherently ableist just because they're difficult. But we live in an ableist society and that privileges particular types of gameplay that frequently require high-level motor skills and particular types of cognitive abilities, which means that particular people are able to play them quite, quote, easily and other people have a lot of difficulty with them. Um, So if you make the comparison to something like the idea of walking simulators. Uh, walking simulators are often, the phrase walking simulators is often used by gamers to deride particular games. So for example, a game like Firewatch, where you're walking around and interacting with people and um, it's kind of a choice-based game. Um, quote, real gamers <laughs> might describe that as a walking simulator to kind of talk it down to be like it's not a real game it's just a walking simulator you're just walking around doing nothing there's no challenge in it Um, and when people describe things in this way and that's the culture it's essentially telling AAA publishers like don't invest in these games um, even though technically much more people are able to play the games are physically able to play these games because they don't require you know fast reflexes or the ability to use particular controllers to be able to play them Um, there's nothing wrong with preference I much prefer games like hack and slash games over story-based games personally. Sometimes I like story-based games, but usually I prefer games that actually do require a little bit faster reflexes. But when there's this stigma attached to particular types of games, it is essentially dissuading sex of gamers from purchasing them because they don't think of them as real games that are worthy of spending money of. And it also stops players of these games from being comfortable describing themselves as gamers. Um, so maybe start with Nissa. What was, what do you think of this idea of describing a game purely because it's difficult as an ableist game? I agree with your statement that it's not necessarily ableist, but society itself is ableist around it anyway. And I just wanted to add, Firewatch is awesome, and <laughs> I really enjoyed it, and I don't care what anyone says. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Um. so... I would agree as well, and just 
point out that it's ableist insofar as basically anything in society is ableist because there is that again that presumption of normative able-bodiedness at the heart of game design um and it really reminds me of this idea of the non-neutrality of technology so technology is often cast as being neutral in any sort of social sense so technology is not racist technology is not sexist so on and so forth or ableist for that matter and um this ignores the fact that technology is invented within certain contexts that have these kind of assumptions, these sort of norms about who it is for, what it must um, achieve, so on and so forth. So if you think about image capturing and the kind of technologies that were invented uh, as the first forms of that, um, these kind of technologies captured white bodies a hell of a lot better than darker complexions and that was just because the technology was designed and there was this unconscious assumption that it was for uh, white people essentially and so there was there's that idea of non-neutrality it's not that the technology was specifically intended to be just for a particular racial group it's just that it just happened to emerge that way because of the racist norms within that within that society and that just did not get flagged as an issue until much later down the line and it's very similar or the same with game development and, and as I mentioned VR development earlier. The other thing I want to talk about is walking simulators as a term it's very interesting I too also adored Firewatch but it is also I mean I understand why the term walking simulator exists because there is um, very little problem solving in that game essentially it's just progress in the story which is fine as an experience I enjoyed it tremendous tremendously the the thing about that term is I find that it is a genre tag that's becoming taken up by people who genuinely enjoy these games as not a derogatory thing anymore so I think of um, a lot of figures uh, writing reviews and features for IGN.com at the moment I listen to a lot of their podcasts so figures like Marty Sleever, Ryan McCaffrey, and Justin Davis, who I who I know enjoy Firewatch or Gone Home or any of these kind of games, they use the term walking simulator, even though they rate those games very highly. I mean, uh, I think Ryan, Ryan McCaffrey has Firewatch up as one of his favorite games of the year, whichever year it came out. So there might actually be a turn in the use of, of this term as just an insult of the game itself and the people who enjoy those kind of games. But then also I encounter commentary on games like PUBG, Player Unknown's Battlegrounds, which is a massive success at the moment. Uh, it's taken the world by storm in terms of PvP uh, gaming at the moment. And a lot of that game is described as just being a running simulator in that kind of same sort of yeah, you're running from the zone that's creeping in on you. Um, you don't encounter any enemies for ages until the <laughs> until like it, the zone really constricts people in one certain space, and that that's kind of an insult to that kind of gameplay. So there, it's still kind of in the air, a sense in a sense, but I do think there is a, a turn happening in terms of that genre tag. Mm. Yeah, I actually saw on a online someone talking about how Sony doesn't have any good exclusive games, which we've discussed this off mic, but in terms of exclusive games only, I think Sony is leading the way. Um, but basically his evidence was that Uncharted is a walking simulator. 
What? <laughs> he doesn't even understand the term. What? You are only shooting in that game. That's why I hated the first one when I replayed it. <laughs> and I think the reason was he was talking about the puzzles and apparently anything which is puzzle-based as opposed to combat-based for your mechanics is a walking simulator as opposed to, you know, a real game where you, you know, kill people like a manly man. <laughs> Even though you kill a whole lot of people. You are a mass murderer in that game. We've been over this, Mia. <laughs> I've, I played 1 and 2 recently because I bought a PS4 and I returned to those games. I like 2, but uh, 1, I mean, it's an issue in 2 as well, but there's just so much combat in that game. You literally wipe out armies of mercenaries in both games. Nathan Drake is a monster. <laughs> so how is that a fucking walking simulator? That guy's just an idiot. I don't know. I'm done. I don't I'm know. out. Flip's table. So... There's a lot of things to think about in terms of accessibility meaning disability because, like, what particular disability are you trying to account for? I mentioned I have issues with my hands, so Xbox, PS controllers are not my thing, but also I get nauseous in games that are first person like Dead Island Among the Sleep and Hellblade again. And there are a range of accessibility options that are available in many AAA games, such as accounting for colour blindness. Uh, recently, I, at a conference, I saw one person suggest that games shouldn't rely solely on colour to convey information because of this. Offering subtitles, sliders to adjust brightness, contrast, text size, font choice. They're also very much an accessible option when you consider things like it dyslexia and you've also got remappable keys all of these things though account for different types of disabilities or people with chronic conditions so you can't really make things accessible to everyone um, recently I saw that EA has been in the spotlight with Madden NFL 18 um, that they're adapting rumbles on the mechanics to be able to convey information that's otherwise solely visual. And I see this again when I consider going back to Hellblade, because Hellblade plays with your hearing senses more than other games. You don't have a UI or an explicit tutorial or instructions. A big part of the game is Senua's psychosis. You're constantly hearing other people's voices in her head, voices that you don't know if you can trust them. But they can be helpful because of the limited visual perspective around the character you can't see what's around you as much as say in world of warcraft if you zoom out really far you can see everything but your psychosis actually talks to you and says you know they're behind you and warning you in that audio manner rather than visual but it takes some getting used to because the voices can also lie and deceive you. And I haven't had them deceive me in a combat situation yet, but I'm curious about seeing whether that's actually a possibility. And you need to consider that all of these things can also be useful to people without disabilities. So say, for example, I don't tend to have my hand problems with keyboards and mice, but I use remapping to, say, 
put all of my damage buffs on one button. One thing I found interesting with my partner is that he's left-handed, and so he rearranges his main combat buttons on Warcraft completely different to me because of how his hand moves around the keyboard. And I think that's interesting and important to take into consideration that when you talk about accessibility, again, like we've mentioned throughout this whole episode, it's not just about, you know, making it available to everyone, making it available just to people with disabilities. It's accessibility is an ingrained thing that's just making it accessible for human consumption. So on that great note, uh, I think we'll leave the episode there. So I want to thank you, Nissa, for joining us today. It has been amazing to hear your expertise in this area. And you can find more of Nissa on both Twitter and academia.edu. I'm going to put both of those links in the episode description. All right. So if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find our podcast. You can find this episode and all future episodes on iTunes and Stitcher. Also check out our website, www.tropewatches.com for all episodes, extra content, or to download an RSS feed. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash tropewatches. And you can tweet at us or follow us on Instagram at tropewatches. You can also email us at tropewatches at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Scott. And I'm Mia, and we are your Tropewatches. Watchers.